You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In our final lesson of the Foundations module, Final Appointments, Philip Edwards will teach on the two appointments we will all have to keep before we transition into the next world. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and events and also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Okay, let's go on to the uh, last uh, session of this module on laying the foundations for our life. Uh, I hope you've gained uh, a lot from the last few weeks uh, looking at those four subjects. We're going to deal with the last two tonight, which is resurrection from the dead, and and that will be followed by uh, eternal judgment. So let's just have a word of prayer, and then we'll start opening up these scriptures related to this. Heavenly Father, we just Thank you for your precious word and we ask you that by the power of your spirit you'll speak into our hearts this evening, you'll re-establish truth if there are new concepts and ideas. Lord, help us to uh, understand them, to see them and to just uh, draw closer to you as we build a strong foundation into our Christian life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The four doctrines that we've already looked at, they happen to us in what we call real time in this present world. We've looked at repentance from acts that lead to death. We've looked at faith towards God. The two, the two foundational teachings that get us into the kingdom, get us started. We looked then at the laying on of hands and baptisms Uh, We looked at two baptisms, I think that's important. We looked at the baptism in water, followed by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This evening we're going on to the last two, which is, as I said, the resurrection and eternal judgment. Everyone who who has ever been born, anyone who has come into this world, this is two appointments that they will have to keep. So if you want to put the last two entries in your diary, these are them. It is going to be the resurrection. You will be resurrected from the dead. You physically will rise from the dead. And then you will face a judgment. You will have to stand uh, before Christ. So they're two definites. And they happen for everyone who's ever been born. So we're going to look at these two this evening. To do that, I want to turn you to a passage in Luke's Gospel where Jesus teaches himself about resurrection. It's in Luke 16. I'm going to read it together with you from verses 19 to 31 if you want to follow it through in your Bibles. Some people would say this is no more than a parable. It sounds like a parable, a story that Jesus told. Some believe it's more than a parable, that it's actually a picture of heaven and hell. Others would believe that it isn't really a picture of heaven and hell, and I would tend to agree with them that it's an actual uh, account of something that Jesus had seen. Jesus had experienced and he knew it. It's written in a, a figurative way. It describes what Jesus saw in the spirit realm. That's what I believe it is. So let's read this together 
and then you course in all these Christian things it's not being told what to believe but you have to work out your own salvation you have to work out what it is you believe often a teacher can present options to you so you have to work through it in your own spirit mind and work out what it is that God is saying here there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is in comfort here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced, even if somebody rises from the dead. Let's try and open this up and uh, uh, see what Jesus was teaching in all of this and how it relates to us and our resurrection. Before Christ's death and resurrection, everybody who died, as before Christ came and died, Everyone prior who was born and died in the world, they died in what the scriptures call, they died in their sins. That means the price of forgiveness and the cleansing of sins stained from their hearts had not yet taken place because Christ had not been crucified and died. It took the death of Christ to remove the stain of sin from a man's heart and also to pay the price to God, for God to forgive man of his sins. So everyone prior to Christ coming and dying, they died in their sins. So if they died in their sins and they had sin in them, they could not stand in the presence of God. However, at death, when a person died prior to Christ coming, God made a declaration over their lives. He either says they were righteous or they were wicked. Now, we have three real periods in history. We've got a time 
from Adam to Moses. We've got a time then from Moses to Jesus and from Jesus onward. From the time of Adam to Moses, God dealt with people in a way that they weren't subject to the law of Moses. They never had the covenant of the law. So this is how God dealt with them. If a man believed in the invisible God, an example of that could be Cain and Abel, or uh, it could be Noah. Uh, God was invisible to them, and yet we know these people before Moses, they believed in the invisible God. We know that if they obeyed God, how did they obey God? Well, everyone is born with the law of God in our hearts. We're all created with that law. So if a person before the time of Moses lived and believed in the invisible God, he lived according to the law of God that was in his heart, they lived, God would have declared them as living by faith, trusting in the invisible God, trying to live an obedient life. If they failed in their obedience, they would offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices as an offering for God to forgive them of their sin. We know this from the story of Cain and Abel. They're right at the beginning. It says that Cain, uh, he offered uh, uh, an offering to God and Abel offered something to God. And we know that Cain's offering was rejected. It was things that he had grown in the ground. But we know that Abel's offering was acceptable. It was a blood sacrifice. And so God forgave Abel because he received Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain because he never received Cain's offering and sacrifice. So right back there, we see that God is is willing to forgive people and to uh, enter into a sort of a relationship with them. And so that when people died prior to Moses coming and they had done the best that they could do, as they died, God would call them wicked or he would call them righteous. A wicked person would be somebody who was living independent of God, thought nothing of God, gave no attention to the things of God. We see this clearly at the time of Noah. It says that Noah was the only righteous man. He is the only man that honoured God, only believed in God. And so the rest didn't. They could have, because if, if Noah could have believed in God, so could the rest, because the rest didn't. And so they were condemned and they were called wicked when they died. When Moses came, that was about 1,500 years after creation and Adam, we know that obviously God created a nation of people that he called Israel. He gave Moses the law so that the nation had laws to live by. And we know that then, if the people of Israel believed in God, if they obeyed the law of the covenants that God gave them to Moses, and they offered blood sacrifices for the times that they sinned, When they died, when a person died, if he had done this, God would declare him righteous. If they didn't do that, then God would say when that person died, he was a wicked person. They lived without any thought of God. So when people died, they were either declared by God righteous or wicked. Now, this, you think, well, why have you gone into that long-winded explanation of that? Well, it fits into this story. 
In, in reading the story, Jesus is not describing, I believe, heaven and hell for one minute. What he's describing is a place called Sheol. That's a Hebrew word. There's a Greek translation of the word Sheol, and it's the word Hades. Unfortunately, the English translation of the word Hades is hell. It's not, a, it's not a good translation because in the minds of people, we think hell is the place where people end up who have rejected God and in the end that God has rejected them. So Hades is not really hell, but it is a place of departed spirits. Prior to Christ coming and dying on the cross, everyone who died, whether that person was declared righteous or wicked, they went to a place called Hades. They went there because they could not stand in the presence of God because their sin had not been fully atoned for. They were still had sin in their heart or the stain of sin or the consciousness of sin in their heart. So Hades was a place where the spirits of all dead people, righteous and wicked, went. So I believe what Jesus was saying is that with these two men, one was considered righteous and the other was wicked. And they go to a similar place and they can see each other. They are divided into two chambers. There is a smaller region that is set aside for those that are righteous and a much larger region for those that are wicked. The two regions, it says, were separated by a great chasm. Uh, you couldn't cross from one to the other. It was impossible. So hold that in mind. That was the picture, I think, that Jesus was drawing for us when he told uh, what looks like a parable. But I think it was explaining the reality of what happened to people before Christ came and Christ died. Now we move forward into the New Testament. Prior to the death of Jesus, we read about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read that passage together as well. It's found in Matthew 26, to read to you verses 36 to 46. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and, his two, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible... May, be, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said, Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father... If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here come my betrayer. It says that Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, I don't know if that's something you can identify with. To be so sorrowful, uh, you're just, you couldn't get closer to death. Just sorrow takes you to that place. What is it that overwhelmed Jesus in the garden? Because it was something in his mind, wasn't it? It was a, something he was coping with. We talk about the baptism of suffering, and he talks about he must drink this cup of sorrow and suffering. So what was it? Well, through his life, Jesus had sustained many attacks and overturned many of the attacks from Satan. Time after time, people came to kill him, to take his life, to, to do stuff. But he, he could resist and he could overthrow Satan every time. He'd never faltered once through all this and he had maintained a sinless life the whole time. I'm sure Satan often came to trick him and to deceive him and to cheat him. What he faced... The great onslaught any human being had ever faced was was so severe in that garden. It was like uh, everything that Satan could bring against him, he brought against him at that moment, bringing him almost close to death itself. Remember, Jesus says, the gates of hell are, are warring against us, but they will not overpower us. I understand now a little bit of what the gates of hell at their very worst would have been like. Jesus taken that to that point of of almost dying. Was there a fear that was trying to grip his heart? Uh, We will be attacked by fear, but we have to resist fear. We have to deal with it, not, not let its assault dominate our lives. What was the great fear that attacked Jesus that night in the garden? I think the fear, if there was anything that he considered there, was would he be successful? Would he fail in this, the the last great challenge of his life? I'm sure the devil was so goading him, bringing pressure on him. He will be arrested like a criminal in a night raid. He would be hauled before a kangaroo court, falsely accused by bribed witnesses. He would be spat on, he would be beaten, he would be humiliated. His close friends will all desert him. Peter will deny him. And Jesus knew this, didn't he? He knew in advance what was coming. He warned Peter what was coming. He would be flogged mercilessly. 
He will be stripped and executed. The thought must be so pressing on him, will he remain faithful? Faithful to his father. Faithful to all those who depended upon him. All those people that were captured in that place, Hades, in the upper region that were waiting to be led out of that place were all expectant on Jesus doing what he needed to do. Did they know this Jesus was coming to set them free? They were captives who would be liberated and taken into the presence of Almighty God. Well, their whole lives, their future depended upon this man, Jesus Christ. Millions yet unborn, all of our lives depended on Jesus in those hours. You and me, our life, our future, along with millions of others, they were depending that Jesus would not fail on this particular night. God the Father was watching what his Son would do. The Holy Spirit was in attendance. He couldn't do anything for him. He simply had to watch. The angelic host Thousands upon thousands and thousands of angels were looking. They were all focused on the man, the man, Christ Jesus. Would he fail or would he succeed? Will he forgive his accusers in his heart? Will, will he forgive them or not? Will he insult the religious authorities of the day? Will he despise the soldiers that were so cruel? Will he hold Pilate in contempt? Will he blame God, the Father, for deserting him? Will he run away? Will he call down angels to lift him out of the situation Will he fail? In this, his greatest hour, and then you think how much he needed his disciples to pray for him. Just think about that. They didn't probably understand the full extent of what was happening that night. They didn't get it. If they did get it, they wouldn't have fallen asleep so easily, I'm sure how much he needed his companion's prayer to sustain him. That's how awful it was for him that night. But as we read through the story at every stage, at every step from the Last Supper, the previous evening, to the giving up of his spirit at about three in the afternoon, the next day's 21 agonising moments, an awful ordeal... Jesus triumphed. Jesus held it together. Jesus says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured this agony, this pain for each one of us. What was in his vision was partially, oh, lots of things, 
It was the fact that he would fulfill the mission his father sent him on. The joy that was set before him was us. Millions and millions of people who would be born again and worship him. All those people that were held captive in Hades would be released. For the joy that was set before him, he triumphed over the cross. When he died, he no longer required his physical body for what he was expected to do next. He stepped into eternity. He stepped out of time and into eternity. Eternity is not a measure of time. That's everlasting is a measure of time. Eternity... There is no time in eternity. Eternity is where God dwells. When we step out of this physical world, our spirits will step into eternity. It is as though in a moment you're here, your eyes will close, and then you'll step into eternity. You will know you haven't got a physical body, but you know you will be somewhere the very soul and being of yourself, your consciousness and awareness, because if we look at this story that Jesus told, there is consciousness, there is awareness. Lazarus knows what's going on. Everyone is conscious of what's going on. So the Bible says, listen, when you step out of this physical world into eternity, there will be a consciousness and there will be an awareness. It is the dimension where physical human bodies cannot enter, but where the spirit of men and women will step. Jesus stands then. Where does he stand in eternity? We know he travels to Hades. We don't know first if he went to his father and went down to Hades. It's not absolutely clear. But we do know that he stood in Hades. He stood in Sheol, as the Hebrew people called it. Another word in English for that is the word the netherworld, the place of departed spirits. Jesus went there. He went there to welcome the repentant thief on the cross. Remember what he said to him. He said, today you shall be with me in paradise. So as the repentant thief came down into this place called Sheol, this place called Hades, he was there to greet him, to welcome him there. The unrepentant sinner on the other side of Jesus, he never went where that man went, but he went to the other place, the other half, beyond the chasm. In Hades... Jesus, it says, travel down to the lower chamber, to the other place. There it says, and it's not clear in Scripture what actually went on, but it says he preached or he proclaimed to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So Jesus welcomes the man into Hades. 
He then goes down into the lower region where these people are imprisoned and they, they can't travel, they can't come out of that place and he speaks to them. I wonder what he said. Well, it's not clear. But what we know is that thousands of years previous, because these people were there from the days of Noah, we know that Jesus preached to these people through Noah. I'm, I'm anticipating that I'm, Christ is preaching to you this evening through Philip. That's what I'm surmising, that he takes his saints and he preaches through them. So Jesus preached when all of these people that were in this prison, he preached to them through Noah on earth. He encouraged the people to live for God to live according to the eternal law that was in their heart, to live a righteous life like Noah lived a righteous life, then to accept by faith that there was a God. But of course, they wouldn't do that. He even offered them a provision for their salvation, which was the ark. See, God has never changed. God is always offering people a means of escape, a provision, a way of being saved and this is what he was offering to these people and yet they rejected it they chose not to put their faith in god's provision so they all died they died wicked men not righteous but wicked and now they were imprisoned in hades I've surmised, like lots of others have, of what Jesus said to them. Did he say something like, their position in eternity was not so much a condition of the favour of God, but their own personal choice to either receive salvation from God, to believe in God, or to reject God, that they chose and in their choosing, they chose for eternity. See, Jesus is our ark. And when we were invited to get on board, we got on board. You're on board tonight. You're safe in the ark. I love the picture of the ark where God closes the door. It's like once you're on board, you can't get off. There's no way that anyone could get out of the ark, the door was closed by God on them. As Jesus leaves Hades after he had proclaimed or preached to these people in this prison park where they could not escape, Jesus leaves Hades and all these people who had previously been declared righteous but were trapped in this place called Hades because of the sin that was still in their life, their sin had not been removed, through Christ going to the cross and through his resurrection from the dead, these people were led out of Hades into the presence of God. They were released. It says this in Ephesians 4, 7 and 9. When he ascended on high... He led, that's when Jesus went up from Hades, when he ascended on high, he led captives, those that were imprisoned to Satan, although they had died righteous men and women, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train 
and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? So as Jesus rose from the dead, he saved men and women. Now, we comprise three parts. We are body, soul, and spirit. That's indivisible. You cannot separate your body from your soul or from your spirit. Now, at death, your spirit and soul will be separated from your body, but that's a temporary measure. A day will come when Jesus returns that your spirit and your soul will go back into your body and you will be a complete whole person again. He saves us completely. He saves our body. He saves our soul. He saves our spirit. And that which was separated through death, he brings together again through the resurrection. The picture is clear because the spirit of Jesus went back into the body of Jesus, the stone was rolled away, so the physical body of Jesus, spirit and soul in this man, could walk out of the tomb. So if he was the firstborn amongst many brothers, we too will be born in the same way. We will be resurrected. Our spirit and our soul will enter again into our body. All those who put their faith in the death of the physical resurrection of Jesus will also be raised from the dead in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, there is a, a proof of this in Matthew 27, 52 and 53. We read this. It says, when Jesus rose, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Have you ever thought about these people in the tombs? I don't know how old some of them were. I believe lots of them have already decayed into dust. It's nothing more than dust. In the parable of the sower, it says that those who had a good and a noble heart, they produce a hundredfold return. I was just sort of musing with this, nothing definite about this, but I wonder how many people came out of the tombs. I wonder if it was a hundred, so it could tie into the hundredfold return. If a seed goes into the ground and dies, and then it produces, well, Jesus wouldn't produce less than a hundredfold return. That's for absolute certain. So I'm just going to just suggest this to you. It doesn't matter how many rows, whether it's 50 or 100 or 1,000. The point is that God was able to take the dust of these people and bring it together and form the body from the dust that was in the coffins or the dust that was in the tombs. It was dust in many cases, just skeleton bones and dust. And he brings it together 
And then the spirit and soul goes back into that body and that body comes out of the ground or out of the tomb and it starts to walk around the city of Jerusalem and it starts to speak to people and people recognise these people for who they are. The resurrection. Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. These Num- number of people, let me, let me get away with my hundred tonight with you. These hundred people, they too were resurrected from the dead as a, as a sign, as a picture. When Jesus comes, thousands and millions of people who have died believing in the Lord Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years, if they are nothing but dust in the earth, which many of them are, all that dust will come together. God will reconstitute the body and the spirit that is with God now will come into those physical bodies and they will be alive, real people again, resurrected from the dead. When Jesus returns, if we have died and our spirits are with God, On that day, God will unite our spirits with our physical bodies, as he did with Jesus, as he did with those others that he resurrected. And we will rise from the dead and live with Jesus forever. Jesus has a body this evening. His body came out of the tomb. His body, they saw his body physically go up and he then went into a a different, uh, uh, um, as I can say, a dimension, sorry. He went into like a different dimension where his body might not be seen, but when he comes to earth, his body is physical and real amongst us. It says, when we are with him, we will be never separated from him again. It says, the heavenly Jerusalem came down from heaven and came to earth. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will have resurrected bodies, real bodies, living in the new earth. Never to be separated from God again. If we are alive when Jesus returns, we will pass from time with these bodies into eternity, with new physical bodies that God will give us. We will be translated into bodies like Christ's. It says this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-one to 54. Listen, he says, I tell you a mystery We will not all sleep. Well, he means we'll not all die. So when Christ does return, people, there are people who will be on the earth still. Whether it's any of us, we don't know. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound. The dead will be raised, imperishable, So we will be given bodies that will never perish, never die, never grow weak ever again. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So we are mortal now. We are subject to death. But when we have our resurrection bodies, 
They will be immortal, just like the body of Jesus today is an immortal body. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Between now and then, death will swallow us all up unless Jesus comes. We will be swallowed by death. But it says when Jesus comes, Jesus will swallow up death. In other words, we will then come and be physical, real, living people once again. Those who have died in their sin, who are still in Hades, they will have to wait for a resurrection at a later time. This then is the Christian's great hope that makes all the hardship and the sacrifice that we pay now worthwhile. The hope that spurs us on to love and service is that one day we will be raised from the dead. This is foundational to our Christian faith. This is what spurs us on. This is what puts everything into perspective. We are eternal beings. If we don't see ourselves as eternal beings, we will live for the miserable 70 or 80 years that we have. But we have been given a lot more than that. We have been given eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and we have been given resurrection from the dead. Amen? I'm sure you all said amen. Okay. As Pentecostals, you see, I need, I need some response like that. Okay, well, now you're resurrected. We move on to the next part. That was your first appointment that you kept, which was the resurrection. That wasn't too painful for us, is it? It's either we, we die and then our spirits go to the Lord, then our bodies are reconstructed and our spirits come into them when Jesus returns and we live with Jesus forever. That's an appointment all believers will keep without a shadow of a doubt. The next appointment we have to keep is that of eternal judgment. There are three successive scenes in the Bible that are to do with eternal judgment. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before Jesus Christ, the Saviour, and he will judge all men. Each of the three scenes of judgment are marked out from the other by the type of seat the judge will sit on while carrying out his judgment. Jesus has been given the responsibility of sitting on that seat. Not there to condemn, but there to listen and there to say, this is the result of your life. This is the result. Now, we need to hear what sort of judgment that we're going to face. The three judgment seats that he talks about in Scripture, there is the judgment seat of Christ. That's the judgment of us, of Christians who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Then there is the throne of Christ's glory. That is the judgment of the Gentile nations on the earth upon Christ's return. The third judgment is the great white throne judgment. Those to be judged at the second 
resurrection. Remember I said there are still those that remain in Hades and they will come out of Hades after we have risen and we're with the Lord. They will come and be judged at a later time. That is the great white throne judgment. In all three of these judgments, Christ is the judge. That responsibility and authority has been given to him by the Father. What he says will be final. In every case, it will be an individual matter. You will stand as an individual before the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't stand with anyone your pastor or your vicar or your wife or your husband or your children, you will stand as a person created by God in the face of God. Now, the only judgment that we need to concern ourselves this evening, if we're born again of the Spirit of God and we're trusting Jesus as our Saviour, the only judgment that we need to concern ourselves with is the judgment that comes to born-again believers, those who serve Christ with their lives. It is the judgment seat of Christ judgment. Let's go now to a court scene. We're familiar with this, whether we've stood in a court and been a witness or we've sat on a jury or we've even only seen it on television. Most court scenes are the same. We see the defendant. He sits usually in the dock until he has to stand before the judge. He sits in the dock. He sits before the judge. The judge, when all of the proceedings are over, will either condemn this man, so you are guilty of what you've been charged of, and then will give him the penalty for his, his crime, Or he will acquit him. He will say, you have not been found guilty. You're free to go. You're an innocent man. Our judgment will not be one of condemnation or acquittal. It's not a question of whether God condemns you, says you're a terrible person, or acquits you and says you can go free. It is a judgment where he's going to assess our rewards. It's a judgment in respect of our service, not our sin. Our sin has been dealt with. In coming to Christ, Christ gifted us and appointed us for a particular service. The words or Christ will ask you is, have you completed the work I've asked you to do? Now, what's very frightening is you say, well, I don't know what he's asked me to do. That's a bit scary. We should know what he's asked us to do. And if you don't know, I suggest you ask him very quickly so you work out whether you're doing the things he's asked you to do. Have you done the things I've asked you to do? The other score that you'll have is how well did you do them? You say, well, it it doesn't matter how I live my life now because I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Oh, it does. Everything you've ever said or done or thought, God sees. And there is a, a judgment on that. It all has to be judged in our lives. Through faith in Christ, God granted you righteous. 
He said, you're a righteous one. You're not a wicked one because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I declare you as righteous. So it's not a question of whether I'm going to condemn you or acquit you. You've been acquitted because of the righteousness of Christ. You could say that you have God's stamp of approval on you now. You have been passed. Boom. You have that approval stamp. That can never be taken off you because of your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a break from the court scene. I want to take you to a couple of parables that Jesus spoke. These are parables, but they're parables that portray what it's going to be like at the judgment. They are about the rewards that we will receive. There are two parables that we must study this evening. The first parable is called the parable of the talents, and that's found in Matthew chapter 25. And the second parable we've got to study is the one called the parable of the ten minas. That's found in Luke chapter 19. In both parables, Jesus emphasizes one thing. We'll see why there's two parables and what the difference are in a little while. Jesus emphasizes we must pay attention to what has been given to us. We must pay attention to what we have. Don't worry about what other people have. What has God given you? What graces has he given you? What giftings has he given you? As you concentrate on what he has given you, then you can only respond to him with what you have. That's the emphasis in both of these. Let me read to you the parable of the talents then. It's found in Matthew 25. It's it's sort of lengthy, but it's well worth listening to. And of course, we've always got to come back to Scripture and see how Scripture speaks into our hearts. It says in Matthew 25, 14, Again, he says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off. He dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the five other. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, 
harvesting where you did not sow, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I had not sown, and gathered where I had not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's just open this up then and see where Jesus is talking about here and how this fits into the whole question of his judging us. The talents represent the gifts that God has given us to build his kingdom. A person's ability from the Lord might be to write or to speak, to sing, to design, to manage, to lead or to serve or to provide finances, to show mercy or to encourage. The giftings that God graces us with are the talents that he gives us. We have all received God-given talents in our lives. To one he gives five, and to another two, and to another he gives one. The man who receives the five, he labours diligently, and he produces ten from the five. The man who receives two talents also labours diligently, and he finishes with four The reward we see in this parable is the same for the man who got ten as the man who got four, because the verse that is used is repeated to both the men word for word. It's Matthew 25, 21 or 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. God knows what we're capable of. He knows the job that he's given us to do. And in giving us the job, he gives us the talents to do the work he's called us to do. He's just looking for faithful, diligent service. And if we do that, we can expect God's reward to be the same. If we compare ourselves with other people, and listen, you should never do this. Oh, I learned this uh, a very hard way. You must never compare. In this world, we're always comparing ourselves with other people. It'll kill you. It really will. You know, you're looking at your brother or your sister or your person, a colleague at work or something. You need to stop that. You need to try and stop that. Because if we do compare... We look at others and there's always someone who's doing more than you. Whatever you're doing, there's always someone who's doing it better or doing more of it that only makes you feel bad. So stop that immediately. And if you look at that in that way, what you do, you think God's unfair. 
You say, look at God's given that person. They're really blessed and they're doing wonderful things. And look at me. God's given me nothing. Well, that's wrong as well. The fact is, God probably gave the one person more giftings because he had more for them to do. So praise God that you have less and less to do. You look on the bright side of everything, you see. Always look on the positive. So if someone's got umpteen gifts and abilities and talents, he better get on and use them to the maximum of his ability. Now, sometimes I've thought, well, let's, let's do a bit of comparing here. Let's compare me with somebody you might know, Billy Graham. Now, how does my life compare with Billy Graham's? You feel, Phil, you're a non-starter, mate, okay? You're just in some backwater doing absolutely nothing <laughs> with a handful of people. Listen, whatever God's given me, I've worked diligently with it and I've worked hard at it. I would even say I probably worked as diligently as hard as Billy Graham. Now, it's not for me to judge that, but you see, it's not about the man's giftings or the apparent rewards or uh, the, the effect he's had. How committed was I? How hard did I work with what God given me? So if I've gone from two and made four, and Billy Graham's gone from 10 and made 20, the reward is the same. It's the same. If I've worked as hard, because you've only got 24 hours in a day, you can only give yourself to the work of the ministry and what you can give, and that's it. And so we're foolish to compare ourselves. You were perfectly created by God to function in the kingdom and have the gifts and abilities to fulfill your specific assignment. So in regard to what we have, we cannot compare our measured results with anybody else. Now, if you're bound in some way, get free of that. Get free of comparing. Get free of looking at what others have and what you don't have. Stop thinking that God somehow has blessed other people more than he's blessed you. He's blessed them differently because we are all different. And God has made us uniquely different, but gifted us with all the giftings that we need to fulfill the job, the, the task that he's given us. Oh, let's not ex ignore the man who was given one talent. There will be believers who are born again, who will stand before Christ and he will be on the, on the judgment seat. They will appear before the Lord and they will have little to show for their lives. Christ perhaps knew their capability. These were the ones that perhaps he just gave one talent to. But by the mathematics of this uh, parable, he only had to double it to two. And he would have got the same reward as the man who got the ten. So don't, don't denigrate yourself. Don't judge yourself compared with others. Just diligently use what God has given you for the glory of God. And if someone's out there saving thousands of people and you're helping just two or three people over here, that is what God knows and understands and gifts us accordingly. But Christ 
knew the capabilities of this man. He gave him one talent, but he still expected a return, didn't he, on what he had invested in this man's life. This man is described, we've got this word again, he's described as wicked. Wicked and lazy. His reward, instead of being positive, it was negative. Instead of receiving something from the Lord, what he did have was taken away from him. It was taken from him and given to the one who had the most. See, this man was given a responsibility from God. He was given the privilege of serving the Lord. Because he didn't use the privilege and didn't serve the Lord, what he had was taken from him and given to another. Now, this speaks of Christ's dealings with those who fail to go on to maturity, building on a solid foundation with their lives. Was this man lost? I don't believe so. He was saved. And there's a scripture that will support this, which I want to read to you now. It's, uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 and 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 15. This man, although he didn't invest his life and the giftings that he had in the kingdom, he never lost out. It says, if any man builds on this foundation, the foundation of Christ, and there's six things that we can build with. We can build with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, it's very obvious that wood, hay, and straw is, is worth little. It's very bulky, but it's worth little. And we see gold, silver, and precious stones. You only have to have a, a small amount of this, and it's worth an absolute fortune in comparison. It says this, his work, this man who's built, or the people who are building, this, this, his work, will be shown for what it is. Because the day, capital D, the day will bring it to light. So there is a day, the day of the Lord, is the day the Lord will come and examine what it is we've done with our lives. Now, I'll tell you, some of you are built with straw and wood and hay, as well as building with precious stones. There will be periods of your life when you look back and you think, yep, there was a lot of straw and wood and hay there. And there'll be times in your life when you're thinking, well, I think I've got it a bit more right there. I think I've got some precious stones and some gold and silver. So there'll be a bit of a mixture of both. And of course, what God will do, he'll light a fire under all of it. Now we know with gold and silver and precious stones, that will not be consumed by the fire but the other will be totally consumed in the fire. And a fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So God will only reward us for what is left when all of our work's life has been tested in the fire. If it is burned up, listen to this, he will suffer loss. Now we've already said in the other parable, the man suffered loss. What he had was taken from him. So Jesus is saying here, this man, or Paul is saying, sorry, this man will suffer loss. He himself 
will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. So what I'm suggesting to you is it's obvious with the man with the two talents and the man with the five talents, they get their rewards. But the man with the one talent, although there is nothing to show for it, he will suffer loss in that he'll lose what he was given. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames by the skin of his teeth. I looked up skin of the teeth and I thought, where is that verse? Well, it's in Job. I thought it was a New Testament verse, but actually it's a verse in Job. He'll be, he'll be saved by the skin of his teeth. What might this look like, this, the reward thing? In the next world, we will be rewarded with responsibilities. Oh, you won't be sitting around all day. I don't know about you. If this is sitting around, this and this is heaven, this is awful. Uh, I've done so much sitting around lately. Uh, if this is heaven sitting around, I'm not quite sure I want to go there. Now, I didn't really say that, okay, but you know what I mean. It's like it's not going to be sitting around in heaven, I don't think, for one minute. So we'll be rewarded with responsibilities to serve our king. The more responsibilities, the greater the opportunity to demonstrate our love for him. Imagine being somewhere where the greatest delight of your life is to demonstrate your love to God by doing something for him, doing something with him. Imagine that you were given nothing to do that no responsibility was given to you. To be denied the opportunity to love God, that is to suffer loss. Will that be permanent in heaven? Or can we continue to grow and develop when we get to heaven? Will we be given a second chance to get it right? I believe God is the God of the second chance. I'm glad he's given me more than two chances. He came back and back and back and back and back for me again and again and again and said, Philip, we're going to get this right. We're going to get this right. And so he is a God of, and I don't think God can ever change. So in eternity, this poor man who gets in by the skin of his teeth, gets in as it were through fire, has nothing. He's lost what he did have. It doesn't stay there permanently. God didn't save him to put him in the corner, but to give him an opportunity, I believe, to grow again. Let's move on now to the parable of the ten meaners. Although it's very similar, it's different. It's found in Luke chapter 19. Fairly lengthy. It sounds similar, but there are some differences, so it's well worth trying to spot the differences as I read through it. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. So he gives them one 
mina each. So there's a difference. The other one, there was five and two and one, but in this case, they're all given the same amount, one mina. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. That bit's the same. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, he's obviously talking to the Jews and he's using this parable to really direct it at his audience who are the Jews and their rejection of him as king. But we can apply this to us as well in a different way. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more minas. So he used the one and made ten. Well done, good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has uh, earned five more. His master said, you take charge of five cities. Now, you'll notice that what he says to the second servant isn't the same as what he said to the first one, as it was in the parable of the talents. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten mina. Isn't it interesting? Same he does again. He takes what the man has and he gives it to the man who has the most, the one who's going to take most responsibility, the one who's going to give the best return. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So we have a very similar parable as we read them together, but with something of a different emphasis. There are ten servants rather than three, and each is given the same, one mina, which is quite different. Now, the mina doesn't represent our different levels of calling, our different giftings, what God is expecting us to do, or the special giftings we need to do the work that he's called us to do. Rather, the mina represents the grace of God that he makes available to each Christian in equal amounts. So the grace of God in your life is the same as the grace of God in mine. What sort of things am I thinking about? The mind of Christ has been, has been made available to you in the same way it's made available to me. I can think like Christ and so can you. 
the armour of God is the same for you as it is for me. The promises of God are the same for you as they are for me. The love of God is the same for you as it is for me. We, with the graces of God, we all receive the same. With the giftings of God, we might all receive different and different measures. In the parable, the first servant multiplied his grace by ten. He grew in the grace of God. His reward was authority over ten cities. The second servant multiplied his grace only by five, and his reward was less. He only had authority over five cities. His reward was less because the fruit in his life was less. Again, the servant who does nothing suffers loss. Is he lost from the kingdom? No, but he suffers loss. Not only in this world has he suffered loss, but he will start the next world suffering loss. The two parables then are to prepare us for what to expect. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ will stand in front of you. Christ will have these parables in his mind. And now, when you stand before Christ, you'll have these parables in your mind. You know that what is going to happen is that he's going to check over our lives. Not only what we've done, what he's given us to do, but about the graces that we've allowed to develop in our lives. It would be unfair for Christ to judge us without explaining the rules to us. I think so anyway. He needs to explain things to us so it's fair that we know what we're doing before we embark on it. So the first parable, the parable of the talents, is a judgment score. It's based upon our diligence in areas of specific calling and assignment. That which God has called you to do, the assignment he's given you, have you done it? Have you been faithful in what the Lord has called you to do? The second judgment score is based upon our general life situation and our personal response to God himself. These parables serve not to make you feel afraid, but to encourage you to press on, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, letting Christ be formed in you. I believe as well, when we grow in Christ, it isn't a question of a, a, a graph like this that goes up like this. I think it's more like this. It goes very flat. And then towards the middle to end of our lives, we start to rise very steeply like this. It's wonderful how God does it. I think most Christians live like that because while they're young and they've got lots of energy and they've got lots of distractions, their lives are taken like that and their movement is slow. And yet there comes a place in their life where there's a transition and all of a sudden growth is quite rapid. It goes high. That's my experience. That's my thought about it. This judgment seat is more than simply God saying, you got this slightly wrong or, or you know, how did it all work out? There's closure to our life. Remember, this is the last event in our life before we go on to the next world. So there are some other things that have to take place at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to suggest these things take place. 
the healing of wounds, the healing of your wounds that you suffered in silence. Through your life, things have been done to you in the same way they were done to Christ. You were accused of things that you were never guilty of and yet people thought you were guilty. They judged you unfairly. And that pain of being judged in that way, you've carried all the way through your life. God says, you will not take that into your next life. You will not live in eternity with me with the pain of this suffering in your life. Revelations 21 and 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Did you ever wonder what those tears were all about? I think it's not about... uh, Some people can cry very easily. It's about the tears of pain because of injustice in our lives. The second thing is the forgiveness of the wounds that you have inflicted on others. None of us are squeaky clean. We've done things where we have wounded others and because we are Christians, yes, we know we're forgiven, but we've carried the wounds of the things that we have done. We wished we had never done that. And that wound we carry with us all of our lives. It says in Matthew 5 and 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You are not taking that mourning into the next world. You are not taking that sense of unfairness into the next world. There will be no tears because they will be wiped away. The third thing I think God will deal with or Christ will deal with at that judgment is the uncovering of every deception that has ever bound you. Through your life, the devil has deceived you. The devil has stolen from you and he has bound you in your life. There were more blessings for you that you should have received from the Lord but you never received them because we allowed the devil free course sometimes in our lives. We allowed him to steal from us, to deceive us, to lie to us. On that day, all of that deception will be revealed. We will perhaps see how much God really planned for us, what he wanted for us. John 10.10 says, The thief comes to steal to kill and to destroy from our lives. And God will reveal everything in those days. You will know yourself as you really are. On that day, you will know your true value to God. What do you think of yourself now? You think, oh, I'm all right. What does God think of me? God thinks you are so precious, so wonderful. I mean, you could never understand The extent of God's love for you and the love of Jesus for you is just astounding. One day we will see how much they really, really loved us and we will be able to measure the difference between how we thought he loved us and how he really loved us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 12 says this, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
there will be such honesty and clarity and vision between us and God, you will be amazed at what God thought about you, what he thinks about you, how much he loves you, how much he desires you for himself. You will be rewarded by him. We've looked at this already. We've got the wood and the straw and the hay that burns up and we've got the gold and the precious stones that remain. You will receive a reward from the Lord. Some people don't like the idea of teaching rewards, but I believe we will. Whatever the reward you get, great or small, I'll tell you something, you will be grateful. You will be overjoyed with what God gives you. You will know that the judgment that Christ has made about you is absolutely perfect. And you will not be jealous And you will not compare what you have received with what others have received. You will take what you have received and you will invest it in the glory of God. This is the most wonderful thing that happens at the judgment seat of Christ, I believe. As you move away from the throne, after the judgment of Christ, every thought of self will be swallowed up in your thoughts of him. Aren't you tired with yourself, thinking about yourself, protecting yourself, looking after yourself, comparing yourself? I tell you, I am tired with me. I am so tired with me. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to think about me again. That every thought that I have, everything that I possess, everything that I am, for the first time in my life, as I stand in my body, I will give it all to him without any thought of myself. I tell you, that is the most wonderful thing that will happen to each one of us at the judgment seat of Christ. You will be free from yourself for the rest of eternity. You will not be looking at others. You will not be thinking about yourself in any way. You will invest yourself 100% in expressing only the glory of God. From that moment, life in this fallen body will be over and you will know the fullness of being a new creation in Christ for the first time in a physical body. God wants you to know what it feels like to stand up and be a body in front of Christ, completely free, completely free in your life. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be so good. Free from sin, free from death. The life that God always intended for each one of us to have. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. And please remember to head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk to register for our new module, Handling Stress, starting next Monday, the 8th of March. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can make a secure online donation through the website. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.